welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse. We come now to Luke's account of the trial of Jesus. Let us hear together the Word of God. Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 71. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of God, which by its unique power can reveal truth about man and God. May we see all that he has in both today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We continue a sad trek through history's most wicked night. I entitled it that some weeks ago as we moved into Luke chapter 22. We come now to the end of that chapter, that chapter sweeping through history's most wicked night. Jesus himself called it in verse uh, Uh, 53 of Luke 22, the hour of darkness. It was sweeping over all the people that were involved in that terrible night. It began with the betrayal of Christ by Judas and all the drama leading up to that and through it. It continued with the attack by Satan upon Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, seeking to divert him from the cross, calling out to everything in him not to take the cup of the wrath of God, and Jesus was victorious over that great attack. It progressed through the sad betrayal in in a way, certainly the denial of Jesus by Peter in the courtyard, which we saw last time. And now it approaches dawn, and that terrible stretch of hours ends with the most unjust trial in human history. We begin with the the deepest betrayal, the hardest denial, 
and now the most unjust trial without question in human history. This was a a capital trial. In other words, Christ's life was in the balance when all the proceedings started that night. And any just society would make sure that a person who had their life in the balance would have the fairest hearing. The Jewish system of justice, by many uh, historians' analysis, was the highest system of justice operating on the, in the world at that time. It was modeled not only on the Old Testament law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the other commandments laid out among the hundreds in the first part of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which they religiously sought to follow. But they had also developed scores of other oral laws of their own to make sure that justice was done. So if there was any group of people that would make sure that a person whose life was on the line had a chance to have a fair hearing, it should have been them. Now we're used to people, regardless of our opinion of their possible guilt, in our legal society still having their right to a fair hearing protected because our legal system is built on English common law, which was built in large measure on biblical uh, statutes years and years ago. Not to get into something that I think is almost below mentioning in the pulpit context, but it is something that our society just went through. We saw an example of how far our society goes to make sure anyone gets a fair hearing through the murder trial of Alex Murdoch. So many people in our society, partly because of the amplification of the media, were were transfixed by what happened over the last several weeks and months, actually. The trial of Alex Murda on trial for the murder of his wife Maggie and his son Paul in South Carolina. This was an immensely public proceeding, wasn't it? Everything about it was, was covered by countless media interviews and, and every word and, and, and aspect of the trial was, was poured over. Expert after expert invaded cable television to talk about the pros and the cons, whether this was fair or not. What are the possibilities of conviction? What are the holes in the story? The jurors came expecting only three weeks out of their lives to be taken. It ended up being six weeks. And part of that was because a wearying list of 76 different witnesses were called. Some of them called at the very last minute by both sides so that everything that could possibly be heard about this rather bizarre case would be heard. Every witness for the defense and for the prosecution. And it ended finally with an over two-hour summation by the defense attorney for Alex Murdaugh. We know that that two-hour summation was only one hour less than the entire time it took for the jury to make its decision. Three hours later, they came back with a conviction of guilty. We all watched that. And regardless of how you feel about the defendant, no one, I don't think, is saying that he didn't get a fair trial. It's impossible from the human scale to say that more could have been done. So our society went out of the way for someone 
to have that kind of a hearing based on the laws of, of our history and, and many of the principles of the Bible, certainly the Jewish court system should have gone even farther because of how close they were to God's moral law and how God had instructed them. But the trial that Alex Murdoch got bore no resemblance to the trial that the blameless Jesus got. Alex Murdoch had multiple opportunities for full and transparent justice. All of the opportunities that should have been there for Jesus were not given to him. His trial was a sham. The blameless Jesus of Galilee. Jewish law said it was supposed to be all done in public. None of what we read about in this text was done in public. It was all rammed through secretly in secret rooms with secretly gathered groups at night. Any trial where a person's life was on the line, any capital offense trial by Jewish law had to take place over at least three days. Christ was declared guilty by Caiaphas, we'll see, in less than three hours. Jewish law said that no one could be convicted, no matter what the circumstantial evidence, unless there were at least two witnesses that could confirm what he had done. There were no such witnesses in the trial of Jesus. None at all. Everyone in a Jewish courtroom was entitled to have another individual stand there and argue for their defense. None was called for Jesus. He sat in the Sanhedrin hearing rooms alone, not once, not twice, but in three sham trials that night. And in fact, in Jewish law, nobody could be convicted by their own words. In other words, self-incrimination was not legal. But we see here that that's exactly how they convicted Jesus, simply based on what he said. He was tried and put to death not because of anything he had done, which they couldn't prove, but because of who he said he was. And how ironic that in the case of the mighty Lord Jesus Christ, he was simply telling what? The truth. You can't argue with me that this was the most unjust trial in human history. But Jesus predicted that it would be this way because he had told all of them as they arrested him in the garden, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan was sweeping through the landscape, and I believe even he lost control of the events in this scenario, and those that he had influenced and deceived ran out of the reins and pressed Jesus forward and brought him to that cross. So it was a mockery. But in this mockery, we see things about God and men. And so I've entitled this message of God and men because there, there's, there's detail here about the proceedings and it's a rather short description by Luke because his readers were Roman and didn't have much insights or interest into the intricacies of, of the Jewish law system. But I think Luke's emphasis was on the human and divine lessons and we will learn here some things about Jesus Christ as God facing this tremendous injustice, and about lost people. There's greatness in Jesus and darkness that we see in lost people, and we'll see both of God and men today. So we're going to go through the passage, 
And I see that Jesus suffered and offered. He, he suffered two things at their hands, and then he offered two things to them. And in the midst of what Jesus suffered and offered, each of those things, so there's four ideas altogether that we'll be going through, each of them bears a lesson about lost people. Let's, let's go through it together. And the very first thing that I see that Jesus suffered, of the two things that he suffered here in verses 63 through 65, is Jesus suffered indignity, didn't he? Beaten, spat upon, blasphemed, mocked. This is the mighty, miraculously proven, blameless Jesus. The man before trials, when, when they called out for someone to declare anything wrong with him, nobody could come forward. And when Jesus himself challenged the crowds and said, show me anything I have said that it's not true, nobody came forward. Everybody knew how blameless Jesus was, and yet these soldiers treat him with the ultimate indignity. He suffered indignity and lots of it, this perfect man who deserved none of it. Now, I want, I, recall, I want you to recall from last time that there were six trials that Jesus went through. They were all sham. They were all manipulated by fearful or self-protective people to get Jesus out of the way, to get him off their hands and in some cases onto that cross. There were three sham Jewish trials held under the cover of darkness as soon as they had arrested Jesus in Gethsemane. And then there were three other trials after day had broken that they took Jesus through at the hands of Pilate and Herod. There were two hearings before Pilate, sandwiching around one hearing, if you could call it that, by the tin pot king Herod. That all happens later. Luke here abbreviates his coverage of this and there, the three Jewish trials happened that night. Let me list them for you. First, after they arrested Jesus in Gethsemane, they took him to the high priest's house, and there were two families that lived in that house, we believe. Annas was the former high priest. He'd been appointed by the nation of Israel, as corrupt as he was. He'd been high priest, and the high priest was to be high priest for life, but he was even more corrupt than the Romans could tolerate, so the Romans took him out of office, and they placed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, in as the actual high priest. The Jews didn't want to regard that as real, so they still looked at Annas as a spiritual leader. So the very first person they took Jesus to was Annas. Now, Annas and Caiaphas lived in separate wings of the same palatial house, the house of the high priest. You remember they led Jesus into the courtyard and up the stairs into a hearing room on the side where Annas had his dwelling and he heard his cases. And for uh, a period of time just after midnight till about 3 a.m., Annas listened to Jesus and tried to, to probe Jesus and trap him in his words so they could come up with an indictment, some statement of charges. He was unsuccessful. Sometime during that time, Peter had followed Jesus in and been allowed into that courtyard down below. And last time we saw that during the trial of Annas and maybe even the trial of Caiaphas, an hour later, Peter denied Jesus three times, remember. That's all going on. After a couple hours and around 3 a.m. when the rooster crowed, Jesus was walked down across the courtyard. Some people believe as he was walked in chains, past 
and passed Peter in the courtyard. That's when he looked at Peter, when Peter made his final denial. We don't know. He could have looked at him from upstairs on the portico as well. But they lead him across the courtyard, up the next set of stairs to Caiaphas's side, where a second trial takes place. Caiaphas brought in different uh, people for that trial, and it lasted from about 3 a.m. to around 5 a.m. He tried to do the same thing that Annas had done. Yeah, except this time he brought members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, in to bolster his cause. And he tried to find false witnesses, people who could talk about how Jesus had violated Jewish law, but none could be found. And when they did bribe some witnesses, the witnesses themselves, you remember this, contradicted each other, you remember. So this was unsuccessful. Caiaphas finally decides to put Jesus under oath. And he says, I adjure you, tell us, are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? And Jesus in majestic power looks at him and says, I am. You've said it yourself. Caiaphas at that point tears his robes and they all raise their voice and they've got enough now, they think, to convict Jesus. Luke doesn't record this second trial. This happens somewhere between uh, verse 60 and verses 63. But Matthew and Mark do. And they tell us that they rose up as a group and they began to hit him and to spit upon him. This lasted for some time. And then they took Jesus and put him, put him in a holding cell because they wanted to hold one third trial. This one would be after daybreak, and it would be in where the Sanhedrin all gathered in a place called the Palace of Cut Stones. It was, a, it was the Supreme Courtroom in the, the temple. Why did they want to do this? Because they all knew that the two trials they just put Jesus through were illegal. Because Jewish law said you can't try anybody at night either. So they'd already beaten him. They'd already tried him. They'd already declared him guilty. But now, in order to fulfill the law and be above any criticism, they decided to go through the whole thing again in their official meeting room. Ask him again, challenge him again to say who he was. And they would be able to put it on the record. Aren't these people incredible? That's how wicked they were. So they make ready for this hearing. They're going throughout the city, gathering all of the Sanhedrin, the 70 members into this great palace of cut stones, this meeting room of the Supreme Court of Israel. 35 sat on one side, 35 facing the others on another set of raised seats. And the high priest would sit on a larger seat in the very point of the room. The accused would stand before him in shackles. And then they had a scribe on either side of the accused writing down not one court record, but they had two court reporters in the room to put it into the record of Israel. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted this to go on record so they could say that they were clean. Now, some period of time elapsed between the second trial and 
when they got the elders together, it took a little time. So they put Jesus in a holding cell. And that's where we pick up Luke's description in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Who were the men? The, 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 the guards that, that, that managed the prisoners of the Jewish court system. These were not Romans. The Romans beat him and mocked him later. These were Jewish guards. He was at their mercy. He was, he was manacled. His hands were bound. And so they took turns beating and mocking Jesus Christ while the third courtroom was filling up. They mocked him. They used all the names that they had heard in the courtroom. The Christ, the Son of God. They used the very title of prophet that he had been given by all the people. And they mocked him with names to make fun of the fact that right now he didn't look like much of a king or a prophet to them. Then they took a childhood game. You can read about it in ancient history. Children would put on a blindfold and then they would playfully come up and hit the shoulder or, 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 or the, the cheek of the, the kid with the blindfold and the kid would try and guess who it was and they took it to a brutal new level. They blindfolded the Savior, and they didn't just love tap him. The Bible says here they beat him. They beat him so the skin came off. They beat him until the body swelled. The word beating here is in the imperfect tense, which means they beat him as long as their strength held out. It went on a long time. Matthew tells us that they also spat upon him. The covered head of Christ. Maybe they put a shroud over his head or tied a blindfold around him and they just went at it. You've got to think of the merciless nature of that. They beat him, they hit him in the face, but don't we, we kind of have a have a a sanctified version that they just stopped there, they hit him a few times. No, this was a defenseless prisoner whom they hated, who had his hands bound and his face covered up. And they went at it. They hit him in the face, they hit him in the solar plexus, they hit him in the kidneys, they hit him in the groin. They were utterly merciless, and he had to crumple under the pain, and he took it all, and they just intensified it. The blindfold, blows coming at him, side of the head, eyes, jaw. Prophesy, who hit you? Boom. Then another coming from another side, a different voice. You know all things. Tell us who just hit you. I mean, you think about it. You can punch a blindfolded person anywhere, however hard, and they can't even instinctively protect themselves. They, they, they don't see where it's coming from. It's, it's thoroughly cruel. You're totally helpless. And the scripture here says they were holding him, verse 63. So some were holding, others were beating. It doesn't get any more vicious than this or any more deadly. And all of this to the, the God-man who in his omnipotence is God. Do you think he would have had any trouble seeing through a blindfold? This one who could see across the earth. He chose to hold back his abilities and to become what he needed to be in that hour, he took it. Couldn't he have supernaturally blocked their fists? I, he could have done a lot more than that because he said to Peter in the garden, don't you think I can call down 12 legions of angels? But he chose 
to fulfill Scripture because Isaiah said, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so Jesus did not open his mouth. He didn't call down legions of angels from heaven to destroy them, though they deserved it, and deliver himself because he had loved you and he had made up his mind that he was going to save you. And he was going to go to that cross. And this was part of enduring and despising the shame. He endured all of it so that you might and I might one day be saved and delivered. One author wrote, the one who had power over the winds and the waves, let these soldiers scorn him. The one whom when he preached, people said, never a man spoke like this man spoke, would not open his mouth to save himself. So deeply does our Lord love us that he endured all of this and despised its shame, end quote. Yeah. You know, he also did this in fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 52, 14 said of my Savior, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. When did all that start to happen? In the holding cell. And he let it. Isaiah chapter 50. Jesus actually prophesied. He said, you know, earlier in Luke, we don't have time to turn there, but he said, listen, the Son of Man is going to be arrested and mocked. And then he said, spit upon. This all is prophetic. And he was walking in the way of his saving ministry. Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He did it to fulfill prophecy, to show who he was to you. He was in control of the moment, but he allowed himself to be at the mercy of the moment. What a savior. And so Jesus endured and suffered in dignity, and he did it for you. I told you that's the great thing we see about God, but what do we see about man? Here it is, lost people often just hate God intensely. That's what these men were caught up with. They were caught up with a hatred for Jesus as God that was beyond their imagining. Jesus said, this is the hour of darkness. There are times when lost people just hate God intensely. They just do. I did at certain points in my young life. Maybe you did. Maybe you're here today or listening to me, and you do. Love them anyway is what Jesus decided to do. He'd go on and die for the people who were beating him that night. Well, mercifully, day came. But really, that's only a qualified term because... In verse 66, it says, when day came, they had assembled together and the beating stopped, but the humiliation was just getting started. Jesus moves from suffering and dignity to the second thing he endured. He suffered their hypocrisy. This is verses 66 to 68, the, the essence of the trial. A lot more happened in it, but Luke records it here. Remember, the two early morning trials I already told you about were totally illegal. But they'd gotten the words they wanted out of Jesus. Yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God. 
And now they gathered again at daybreak to get the words out of him again, to put it on the record, to make it illegal. And to get it in such a way that they'd have something to take to Pilate so they could get him executed. So they'd all gathered now in the Supreme Court room, the Palace of Cut Stones is what it was called. That's where we believe they probably gathered 35 on a side and all of their regalia looking down at each other and spectators in the gallery and two scribes ready to take all the notes and the high priest at his exalted chair in the, in the, the, the eastern part of the wall of, of the room and all this grand ceremony began and it was all filled with hypocrisy from start to finish. They not only disobeyed all the laws in the early trials, they disobeyed them here. It was a mockery. Dr. Arnold Fruchtebonham is an expert on Jewish life at the time, and he wrote this in his comments, quote, the reason the religious leader of Israel had rejected Jesus was his repudiation of their oral law. Jesus called it the traditions of men. It's called the Mishnah. In other words, they didn't think the Old Testament scripture, the first five books of the Old Testament, had enough law to control people. So they came up with hundreds of laws of their own, and, they, and it was put in this book that was never ended called the Mishnah. It kept getting added chapters. And they had added different laws of, of their own to make sure trials were just. And Dr. Fruchtebaum says it is ironic that during the process that unfolded in the trials of Jewish, the Jewish of Jesus, rather, the Jewish leadership will break 22 of their own laws. The laws that they wrote, in addition to the laws of the Old Testament. They wrote them in the Sanhedrin tractate in the Mishnah. He writes, they broke 22 of them in three trials. That's what I call high hypocrisy. And Jesus endured this as the perfectly just Son of God. It must have disgusted him. Now, Dr. Fruchtemann researched 22 of these. I'll just give you 10 to show you how in, in, in the text of your Bible, you can see how they violated these laws. One, you had to have a public trial. I already explained that. Well, that had been long since past blown by. He had two secret trials at night. Second rule they had was there had to be a defense for the accused. There had to be somebody standing for him. Never allowed in the trials of Jesus. Three, a confirmation of guilt was only possible by two or three witnesses. That's out of Mosaic law. That didn't happen. Four, they had a rule that you could not have a false witness in a courtroom. Yet they went out, probably paid for false witnesses, let them come into the courtroom and even let them contradict each other and didn't do a thing about it. Interesting, in their law, if you were a false witness and you got caught testifying falsely in a trial, they let the accused person go free and then they punished you. It's been said that if the accused person could have been punished by death and you're found to be lying about it, they punished you by death. You got his punishment. None of that happened that night. Five, in any case where death was possible as a sentence, the death had to wait one full day. Trial one day, you waited a, a second day, and only on the third day could execution take place. Why was that? They wanted to wait and make sure that any evidence that could exonerate the person facing a death sentence could come in 
Maybe there was a person that decided to speak up and they wanted to have a hearing before it was too late. So they gave two full days for that to happen. How long did it take for them to send Jesus to Pilate? A heartbeat. And when did Pilate send him to the cross? Same morning. Six, the simple confession of an individual against himself would not decide a condemnation. No one could be self-incriminating, yet that's the essence of what we see here. Seven, they had a, a, a rule that when the vote finally came, they did not have unanimous voice votes. They wanted anybody who thought there was any chance of innocence to vote and to not be squelched. And so there was no voice vote. They started with the youngest member of the Sanhedrin and he would make his vote. And they voted one by one, youngest to oldest, so that the young people would not be influenced by any older, more experienced scribe. And the high priest always had to vote last. What happens in these trials? There's no individual voting. Can you imagine what would have happened if Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea had had a chance maybe to speak? This was a mob. It wasn't a trial. The high priest himself pronounced the judgment and biased the hearing in violation of his own law. Eight, no criminal trial could be carried through the night or held at night. I've already told you that. Two more, nine, the trial was held during the Passover festival and no trials were allowed during that week. You could not do it. Everybody in town knew that one. Brazen. And here's the tenth. You couldn't hold a trial outside of the room uh, called the Hall of Polished Stones. You couldn't hold a trial in a high priest's house or anywhere else. They'd already done it twice. And yet, I've read that they, the Sanhedrin had a, uh, you could call it a mission statement or an axiom. It might have even been on a plaque somewhere in the hallway. This was their motto. The Sanhedrin is to save life, not destroy it. You want to talk about deception and hypocrisy? That's depthless. They were satanically energized. Jesus said, this is the night of the power of darkness. They ignored their own laws all, all night long and into the day. They were about to do so again by commanding Jesus to again incriminate himself. But interestingly here, in, in, in his first state part, the first part of the statement Jesus does make, now back to our text, Jesus exposes them. Look at verse 66, day came, the assembly comes. I've described that to you. Verse 67, the high priest says, if you are the Christ, pointing to Jesus, standing manacled in their midst, if you are the Christ, and the tone of his voice in the Greek said, there is almost, since you're the Christ, since you're the Christ, tell us. He wanted to get it on record again. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. What's he doing there? My opinion, he's by sarcasm saying, this is a joke of a court. 
It won't matter what I tell you or what I ask you. You've already made up your minds to kill me. He exposed their hypocrisy. He said, if I tell you, you won't believe. You're not here to find the truth. You're here to create trapping words. If I ask you to prove your case against me, you won't say a thing because you already have committed yourselves against me. You are hypocrites of the highest order. You're not interested in justice. You're a mob. That's what he was implying, I think, through his words. So he suffered hypocrisy. What do I learn about lost people? Lost people often resist Christ hypocritically. They just do. That's what having a lost heart is all about. You're really not interested in the truth. You just hate God. And even when people bring out proofs and evidences or show you how you inconsist- inconsistent you are, you, you don't even care. Again, I go back to some of my earlier experience resisting the faith, and that was true for me. Christians would try and argue with me, and I didn't even want to hear their arguments, even though they were trying to establish how I might have been wrong. And if they did give me evidences, it blew, back, blew past me, and I came up with another grievance from this way or that way. I was a hypocrite. Until one day one Christian told me I was. And he said, you know, I've given you a lot of evidences for the faith, but you have another problem. You just want to be God in your life, and I can't do anything about that. I commend you to the Spirit of God. I'm going to let God deal with you. And it didn't take long for the Spirit of God to burn me down and draw me to himself. What did I need? I needed the Spirit's conviction at a certain point. Apologetics are useful and amazing, but ultimately the Spirit's conviction. And that's why Jesus exposed them. I'm going to see exactly the fruit that bore toward the end of this message. Here's now the two things that Jesus suffered. Now, he suffered indignity and their hypocrisy, but now we see him turn the tables and he offers them two things. The tables turn in verse 69 with the word but. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He goes from making a statement about how hypocritical they are to making a declaration. See, there was a second part to his answer. The first part was a comment about how hypocritical they are. If I tell you, you won't believe. You're not interested in believing. If I ask you questions, you're not interested in answering. You've already tried me. You're hypocritical to the core. But... From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He was telling them two things. In terms of offering them certainty, he was telling them, you can be certain about two things. One is, I am certainly the Son of God. He was quoting a very familiar verse to them, Psalm 110, verse 1. And he was applying it to himself as God, as the Son of God. And they thoroughly got the message when he said, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Psalm 110.1, a clear statement of equality with God and the sonship. It was so clear that they even got it. 
Because they all said in verse 70, so are you the son of God then? That's what he was saying. And he said to them, you say that I am. That may be a little confusing in your English Bible, but Dr. Fruchtenbaum again comes to our rescue and says that was a common Hebrew sentence at the time that basically is our version of, you said it. So in a moment, he declares who he is because the time has come to declare who he is. He's not doing it because they baited him and made him slip. He's doing it because that's who he is. And they need to know, they need to go on record in heaven for who they're about to crucify. They're scribbling records on earth here about who they're getting rid of. Jesus very clearly states who they're crucifying. So I am certainly the son of God. Now, they were pleased because they got what they wanted because they could take the word son of God and turn it into king of the Jews, and that would frighten Pilate enough to execute him in a few hours. So there thought their work was done, and they said, verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips in violation of our law, but we heard it. They were so excited about that that the next thing they do is chapter 23, verse 1, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. But there was a second thing that Jesus was saying when he said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right end of the power of God. He told you, you can be certain about two things. Number one, I'm certainly the Son of God. And number two, you will certainly face me again on Judgment Day. You see, the statement that he made was really a description of the future. Matthew reveals that Jesus actually added, Luke doesn't have it here, but Matthew and Mark both do. I believe Matthew and Matthew 26, 64 shows us that Jesus merged Psalm 110.1 with Daniel 7.13. What did Jesus fully say in that courtroom? Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, Psalm 110.1, and coming on the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. What's that a prophecy of? The return of the Son of God to judge the planet and to judge his enemies, to set up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, and at the end of that, to to create a hearing room called the great white throne room of judgment where he would sit on his own exalted throne and he would judge every man and woman in history for how they accepted him or rejected him. Guess who's going to be standing at that judgment someday? Every one of them in the room. Jesus was making a prophecy. He says, this is your hour. This is the hour of darkness. You've convicted me in your penny-ante, law-violating, hypocritical little dance. But soon, after you crucify me, I will rise, having atoned for sin. I will ascend into heaven, back into my throne room, and I will be seated again at the right hand of my Father, and I will await, according to his promise, the time that he makes all the nations a footstool for my feet, and then I will visibly return. I will judge not only those nations, I will then walk into the great white judgment hall in Revelation 20 and sit on my own seat 
and will judge you. That was a prophecy that covered all of history. <laughs> you and I will see each other again. It really wasn't an answer. It was a statement. It was a promise. Who was in control of that courtroom? Jesus Christ. Who was really on trial? Jesus? They were. And they plummeted into moral failure. And it was as if Jesus was saying, I see you're taking good notes. Well, my father is taking good notes too. And one day his record of this trial is going to be read back in the great white hall of judgment, word for word, thought for thought, and you will make a defense. It was a promise both of majesty and of goodness. It was a warning. How great he is. What do I learn about lost people there? All lost people will certainly face Jesus in judgment. Not possibly. They will face Jesus in judgment. And the transcript is going to be read back and they will have to defend themselves. And Revelation 20 says there will be no defense. That's why lost people need to trust in the mercy of Jesus now before the court date. In a way, he was offering them rescue. And that's the last thing he offers with which I close. I think not only did he offer them certainty that he is who he is and they will face him, but lastly, he offered mercy. Now, I admit I don't get this from the text, but I get it from all that followed. Let me explain. Although I think there was a manner of mercy in him telling them, listen, judgment's coming and I will be your judge. Don't do this. Or if you find yourself caught up in doing this, come to me for mercy. But he did finally offer mercy. He didn't offer it with words in our text, per perhaps because he was interrupted. We know he was certainly interrupted as you look at our passage, because as soon as he stated this great promise that I am seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am, you said it. And they said, what further testimony? You get a sense that everybody just swept up in outrage and he was taken by the guards almost mid-sentence at that point and taken to Pilate. So the trial ended with the rising up of a mob. So he didn't offer it with words in our text. He was perhaps interrupted in this eruption and hustled away to Pilate, but he did offer mercy a few agonizing hours later in your Bibles in the next chapter, in Luke 23, as the cross was raised, and verse 34, what did he say? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And who was standing there to hear him? Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers 
scoffed at him. Who was around the foot of the cross to make sure this deed was done and this problem was taken care of? The very people who'd been in that courtroom. And Jesus looks down upon them and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He offered mercy. And that wasn't just a statement. Listen, that was a prayer of the Son to the Father. And what does the Father do with the perfect, wonderful prayers of his Son? Does he answer them or not? He answers them. How do we know he answered them? Because beginning that day and sweeping all the way through to this day, countless billions have found forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people on the hillside that day found forgiveness. The centurion among them, perhaps all of the centurion guard there, according to the Gospels, found faith in Christ. The thief to his right, faith in Christ. Some weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, after he had risen and he had sent the Holy Spirit, thousands found faith in Christ. And wouldn't you know it, a few weeks after that, Peter and John heal a lame guy at the, at the door of the temple. They get swept up by the same guards and the same chief priests and the same Pharisees, and they get stuck into a trial of their own. This is in Acts chapter 4. And guess where they get led? Right back into the great palace of hewn stones before the same high priest, Caiaphas, the text tells us, the same Pharisees, and Annas was there, verse 6 of, of Acts 4. And what happens? Well, the text tells us a story. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, the whole bunch that had condemned Jesus, gathered together in Jerusalem in their assembly hall and with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, right there where Jesus had stood weeks before in that room of the Supreme Court, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter filled with who? The Holy Spirit as if Jesus was standing there himself, or their equal God, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You sentenced him in this very room whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, fulfillment of prophecy, which has become the cornerstone. And listen to this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who is he telling that to? the very men that had tried Jesus that night and that morning. I call that mercy. Huh. And you know, that message had already begun to turn hearts, but you take a look at chapter 6, verse 7. Something began to happen, and sometime later, an amazing statement is made in Acts 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith.
who knows who was among them? Maybe somebody that raised his voice and condemned Jesus that early morning, now struck by his majesty and mercy, bowed the knee. What do I learn about lost people there? Here's the last thing. When it comes to lost people, whosoever will can always come. Until the very last breath, whosoever will may come to Jesus. Even if you sat in a room and condemned him to the cross, you can come to him for mercy. Even if you beat him in a holding cell until he was senseless and bloody, you can come for mercy. Even if you nailed his, his arms, his wrists to that cross beam, you can come for mercy. No matter how you've treated him, you can come for mercy. How about where you're at right now? Are you treating this innocent, wonderful Jesus with indignity and with hypocrisy? Are you filled with hate for him today? Understand you're under the power of darkness, friend. But understand that there's mercy for you. He offers you mercy. Please come and take it before certainty comes. Or if you're like me and you now know the Lord, but you acted foolishly in unbelief, and yet he saved you anyway, then thank him. All of us at some point or another have dishonored him, haven't we? Oh, but it's all under the blood. I can't think of a greater moment than communion for you to take all those times in your memory where you've treated him indignantly and without majesty and you thank him for forgiving you anyway. Communion is a reminder of that. Mm -hmm.